Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. In many ways, Anne Frank has become the poster child for the horrors of the Holocaust. Almost everyone has read the published diary of the young girl who hid from the Nazis during their occupation of the Netherlands, was arrested with the rest of her family during a raid of their secret annex, and died of typhus with her sister in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp around this time in 1945. Through her published work, a 15-year-old girl with hopes and dreams made the Holocaust accessible for young people her age and younger. I personally read the story of Anne Frank in eighth grade, out loud on a cassette tape, which my English teacher played for years to come because she wanted students to hear the story in a young girl's voice. She did not even know I was Jewish. But that was more than three decades ago, and it's been 75 years since Anne Frank died. Is Anne Frank still a poster child for the Holocaust anymore? Has she been forgotten? Our producer, Kukong Do, and I ventured to a nearby college campus to test young people's knowledge, and here's what we heard. The anniversary of a well-known figure is coming up, and we want to know if you recognize her name. Anne Frank. I do recognize her name. Okay. Who is she? She was a, a teenager during the Holocaust. I believe she was living in Germany, and she has become a figure in the American literary canon and in American academia, I believe, because her diary was recovered, which chronicled her efforts to stay hidden when... Nazi Germany was actively seeking out and executing Jews by sending them to concentration camps. I know Anne Frank. You know Anne Frank. Okay. Yeah. Who is she? She is she was a young girl who during the Holocaust she hid in the attic of someone's house. I don't know the details. And she wrote a diary that became very famous. How old are you? I'm 19. 19. And when did you learn about Anne Frank? I want to say like maybe 4th grade like during elementary school. Yeah, I okay. recognize her name. Who is she? Um, oh, that's a good question. She was a young girl mm-hmm. um, who, I guess that's kind of her whole story. She was a young girl during, uh, during an unfortunate time mm-hmm. um, who was forced to hide. And, uh, you know, we thankfully have her story because she documented it. How old are you? I'm 17. So we're asking uh, young people like yourself if you know who Anne Frank is. I don't know. You do not? Okay. So Anne Frank was a young girl who uh, was hidden. Uh, She was German-born and grew up in the Netherlands and was, uh, was Jewish. And was, uh, yeah. was I think I okay. hear uh, some of of her story. Yeah, she wrote a diary, and yeah. uh, while she was in hiding, and her father found it after the war yeah. and had it published as yeah, a book during the Holocaust. Okay, exactly, yeah, exactly. during the Holocaust. I remember this. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, wonderful. She was a Jewish kid mm-hmm. who was alive during the Second World War. Very good. And Passed away in a concentration camp. And when did you learn about Anne Frank? I think like three or four years ago. Oh, wow. And how old are you? I'm 11. So the name is Anne Frank. Yes. Okay. Who is she? I don't know that much. I know there's a museum about her life. Okay. All right. Uh, Do you know where it is? No. The family was arrested by the Nazis. She was taken to a concentration camp. That's where she died with her sister. But her father survived and went back to the hiding place, and his secretary had held on to her diary. And that was what was then published as the diary of a young girl. And it was her account of being in hiding from the Nazis during World War II. 
We have an important anniversary coming up for a very well-known figure, and so we're asking young people if they recognize the name. You ready? Anne Frank. Of course. Okay, who is she? Anne Frank. Mm -hmm. She was the girl that was like hiding out. I remember reading the book like in grade school. Mm -hmm. I barely remember the details, but I'm pretty sure she was like a little girl that's hiding out from the Nazis. And she, it was her diary, the book, yeah. Right. So we're asking this because we want to know whether young people have forgotten who Anne Frank is. How old are you? I'm 20. When did you learn about Anne Frank? Um, I, I believe pretty early on, mm -hmm. definitely in elementary school, maybe like third grade or something. Okay. I remember we were going through uh, just like a very general history class, and I, I believe she came up. She was a writer, I know that, and she died. They discovered her books and all that, and she was like making a diary or something about it, the war. So it was really important. Do you know how old she was when she died? 12, something like that. Very close. She mm -hmm. was 15 when 15. she died. Okay. Did you mm -hmm. read Anne Frank's diary when you were growing up or anything based on it? No, I remember like learning about it at school. We're asking young people this question because we have to wonder, like, do people even know who Anne Frank is? Feels like new information. Last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with General Abdel Fattah Burhan, the head of the Sudanese Transitional Council. As Sudan, which freed itself from dictatorship just months ago, takes steps toward democracy and economic stability, does that open up the possibility for a thawing of relations between Israel and Sudan? Joining us to answer that question and help us understand what we need to know about Sudan is Eliseo Newman, the director of AJC's Africa Institute. Eliseo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sefi. Glad to be here. I think the typical reasonably well-informed American only knows two or three things about Sudan. They know that there was a genocide there in the early 2000s. They know that the country of South Sudan broke away in 2011. And they know that last year, the Sudanese people overthrew Omar al-Bashir's military dictatorship. What more should people know about Sudan today? Well, they should certainly about Sudan today also know about what happened to South Sudan since the independence, a very tragic story of strife between factions that were together in the pursuance of independence, but upon independence, unfortunately, and somewhat predictably divided, and that led to a very cruel uh, civil war, which is in part ongoing with various attempts to put an end to it through peace agreements. In terms of the history of Sudan, we should know that it was a, a British colony set up in the late 19th century. And then that led to independence in the 50s at a time when Egypt and Britain had a condominium administering uh, Sudan. Uh, it's a large, very large country, very populous. It's Muslim. And at the time, there was a fear in Sudan that Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, would actually want to keeps Sudan within Egyptian territory. Mm. And this is very useful because it helps to think of Sudan as quite similar demographically to Egypt, although it's more of a, of a sub-Saharan country or a typically African country in many other respects. Mm -hmm. There was just the news that Egypt crossed 100 million people this week. Sudan, I think, is somewhere around 40 or 50 million. Thinking about that kind of a massive, you know, potential super country, you know, gets me wondering more about the demographics of Sudan, about the industry of Sudan. You know, what is that country like today? 
Well, it's a very diverse country ethnically, as we saw, as, as you mentioned, in the case of Darfur is a very clear one, the case of South Sudan even more, more clearly so. But it's also very diverse in its political outlook, which did not come so much to prominence until last year when al-Bashir, a military um, dictator that had a 30-year tenure, was removed. And uh, the current situation evolved into a strong participation of civil society, but tempered by the military, which have held power since more than 30 years. So the government now, post the revolution, is technocratic, is military. Who runs Sudan today? The government is a, is a, a council called this Transitional Sovereignty Council, which is composed half of civilians, and that represents a coalition of various representatives of civil society. Uh, and the other half is the military, with a head of the council for the first more than half in the hands of a general to be succeeded by a civilian to run the council. And then there is a more executive figure in the form of a prime minister, who is also a civilian, uh, actually a, uh, an international development executive who worked in the World Bank called Abdallah Hamdok. And the country is unfortunately suffering from great economic instability. And uh, one of the needs of the country is really to be integrated into the mainstream economy of the world and is looking for partnerships to, uh, to do so. And the idea is, there hasn't been an election yet, but the idea is to be democratic? The idea is to move towards elections in, uh, in three years, in two years plus. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get into the intriguing news about the warming relations between Israel and Sudan, can you just lay some quick background in that area? Have Israel and Sudan ever had relations? Israel actually has had intermittent uh, dealings with Sudan, mainstream Sudan, and also South Sudan. Uh, I mentioned initially that um, when Sudan was founded, um, there was fears that uh, Nasser would actually make it a part of Egypt. At the time, members of the Sudanese political spectrum contacted the Israelis at actually a meeting in London, hoping that Israel would lend support to forestall that potential development, which fortunately didn't come to pass. Eventually, Nasser swayed Sudan, once it became independence, back to the orbit of Egypt and the, the Arab League. And uh, as you probably know, following the Six-Day War, it was Khartoum, where a meeting where the famous three no's were announced by the Arab world, meaning no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. That was in 67. Um, Israel's attitude towards Sudan at the time then became hostile. And as tensions built between the South and the North, Israel was quite helpful to the SPLA, it's the South Sudanese Liberation Army, and um, equipped them with know-how and arms um, as they wage war or, uh, with, with the North. Let's get now to this month's news that Israel and Sudan will push to normalize relations. That sounds like a huge diplomatic coup for Israel. Is that right? It is a massive diplomatic coup for Israel. Um, it's a great thing, I think, for Sudan as well. Mm. A separate matter is how it was conducted, uh, however, and that has to be said. Um, if you look at what's good for Sudan itself, I think um, any measure that strengthens Sudan's economy and at the same time strengthens the, um, the, the cohesion of the democratic forces that one would hope would emerge prevail in a sustainable way, way upon elections further down the line is a good thing for Sudan. Um, Israel's role there uh, obviously is, is one of um, 
assisting in, in having Sudan seen as a friendly country uh, towards the West, which, which is the port of call uh, for assistance in, in the development of Sudan. Uh, and that was very much the idea behind the, the elements in the Sudanese governance structure that looked for this meeting with, with, um, um, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, the, however, um, there's a diversity of, news, uh, of views among the civilian cons- political constellation in, in Sudan as to how and when to engage with Israel. And what's been announced by Netanyahu and, 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 uh, uh, and General Burhan in, in Kampala uh, is that... Kampala is the capital of The capital of Uganda. That uh, is intended to set a path towards normalization of relationships. You know, the other, the other interests there, there are uh, in, in, in this, in this uh, development are um, to wean uh, Sudan from the potential influence of, of, of Iran. And that's the reason why in this meeting it is understood that there was a heavy involvement of the, um, of, of the Gulf, uh, Gulf powers, especially the United Arab Emirates, which presumably set it up or it's understood set it up after about three months of, of negotiations. Um, negotiations with the military. Uh, to go back to your question about Israel and Sudan in the last few decades, you may remember that there were reported bombings by Israel of convoys of arms in Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was understood at the time that, um, that, Su- that Sudan uh, was getting assistance from Iran to arm uh, elements in the Gaza Strip, and, mm. and, and that was the route that the Israelis bombed. Mm. Um, the main obstacle that Sudan has right now economically is um, the fact that because Osama bin Laden was uh, was hosted in Sudan and lodged in Sudan, uh, the U.S. designated Sudan a, a, a state sponsor of terrorism. And uh, that designation stands in the way of Sudan enjoying the support of certain multilateral uh, entities that are deemed to be indispensable for unblocking you know, the, the, uh, the, the hurdles towards development in Sudan. And that was very much behind the, the idea of the military elements that engage in this conversation with Netanyahu. There are elements within the civilian um, spectrum in Sudan that are n- not particularly uh, opposed to engaging with Israel, but saw in the way this was conducted a trampling of the um, agreement that, that it would be the council itself and not one member of the council or one element of the council that would develop foreign policy and a decision of this dimension. And it was reported that the prime minister hadn't been even warned about this meeting, and they learned about it through the press, even though the military claimed they told him a couple of days before. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is that while it's a, a wonderful development, the way uh, this is delivered um, carries some risks because it, it could fray um, the, or, or it could exacerbate tensions between the civilian elements and the military within Sudan. From the Israeli point of view, we have to also realize that to the extent that this engagement has to do with brokering results from Sudan, if those results do not materialize, you have to wonder how, how Israel is going to be perceived and how engagement with Israel is going to be perceived. Yeah. A relationship like this, though, a, a warming, a thawing of ties, it doesn't come out of nowhere, right? There's a lot of hard work that went into this. 
certainly a lot of a lot of hard work has gone into this. Um, there are reports actually that Israel had engaged with Bashir um, as well. I saw in 2016 Bashir kind of had some nice things to say about about Israel, at least relative to its neighbors. Right when the Syrian civil war was kind of ramping up, Bashir said, "You know, even if Israel had taken over Syria, we wouldn't be seeing something this terrible." Exactly, which is mild as a statement as we would see it. It's not mild given the context in which it was made. Um, it's not uncommon. For for African countries and countries elsewhere, really, to think that the road uh, to Washington goes through Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, this is at play very much here. But That sounds vaguely anti-Semitic, right? You know, it, it is anti-Semitic. And yet, if you see it from the point of view of our ability to insert the values of democracy that Israel represents and the potential for engagement with neighbors that develop in that direction, I don't necessarily think it is so. Hmm. Unfortunately, though, um, it is one of the main reasons um, why many of these governments bother to engage, because otherwise they're very focused on their own uh, takeout from from that engagement. Mm. It certainly carries risks. I mean, there is no shortage of radical Islamist movements, in, especially in the Sahel in Africa, that threaten to destabilize governments upon engagement with Israel. So they have to be a, see a benefit. And the benefit oftentimes has to do with, with acceding to uh, raising their profile of attention in America and in, in the mainstream world. And they, they do think that the Jewish community in America and, and, and Israel you know, can, can help in that direction. And in point of fact, after this meeting, in Kampala, the general, General Bullhan, uh, received a call from Mike Pompeo inviting him to Washington. So uh, <laughs> it, it was a pretty explicit um, um, exchange. We're almost out of time, but just before we close, I have two and a half questions here. South Sudan is the newest country on the world stage, certainly the newest that has wide recognition. The government in Sudan itself, in Khartoum, is also incredibly new post the the revolution. I was wondering if you could tell me whether the Africa Institute here at AJC, which you lead, whether the Africa Institute has been able to engage at all with the government in South Sudan, with the new Sudanese government in Khartoum. And also, you know, as you answer that question, maybe just uh, let us know a little bit more generally about the work of the Africa Institute. Certainly. Glad to do so. Um, AJC has engaged deeply with the government of South Sudan, uh, certainly in the lead up to independence. As I mentioned before, we, we, we took for the first time a, a representative of the government of South Sudan um, to be, as it is, I mean, we took him, took him before the referendum, uh, to engage with the South Sudanese diaspora in, in Israel that had migrated through, through, the, the, uh, through Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, because they would, as, as the diaspora elsewhere, vote um, in, the, in the referendum. And basically, this gentleman went to explain what the referendum was about and what the promise of an independent South Sudan uh, represented for them and for all South Sudanese. Um, in so doing, we also introduced this gentleman to Israeli authorities. He, he visited the prime minister's office and the State Department, uh, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and it seemed to us that it was quite clear that uh, a relationship with South Sudan at a time when Sudan was so recalcitrantly against uh, Israel um, 
and the genocide in Darfur and, and other developments, it, it, it was very low-hanging fruit for an ally in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it has to be said also that much of the sympathy, and this goes to your question about the rest of Africa, uh, from South Sudan comes from the fact that they're Christian and uh, just as development is an inducement to engage with Israel and you know the good graces of Washington and, and allies of Israel, uh, also faith is a very strong reason mm. to engage. Yeah. And, and Christian Africa is, is um, very partial um, uh, to, to an engagement with Israel, uh, sometimes seeing Israel in, in rather exalted terms, which one has to encourage them to, to, um, to, to hold as their views, but also temper the expectations because they can be quite, uh, quite outsized. Um, in terms of the, of the current situation in South Sudan, um, unfortunately, things have developed in a direction that has, um, has uh, degraded our engagement. Um, it's, it's, it's a very sad story um, in which the aspect of our advocacy that is based on values um, would be quite compromised if we mm. were to keep the same level of engagement. Ironically, <laughs> the opposite can be said about Sudan following the... Uh, uh, this change, uh, the revolution, and we have had meetings with very senior members of uh, of the government, and um, we we were very sensitively, very sensitive to the cleavages I described before. Uh, are very hopeful that 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 we can have a role in in not only uh, in in helping the relationship with Israel in a manner that is respectful and takes into the consider into consideration the the uh, the, sensi the sensitivities that i described before affecting civilian participation and the and the strength of an eventual democratic dispensation for sudan well, hopefully people listening to this podcast get a great start on uh, educating themselves about Africa and its leadership. Eliseo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Matt Leibovic, the Holocaust correspondent at the Times of Israel. Matt, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, thank you, Sefi. Um, it is, it's been in the news a bit that we're coming up on what would have been the 75th anniversary of Anne Frank's death. And she died in Germany at a concentration camp called Bergen-Belsen. We don't know exactly when, sometime in February or March, a few days apart from her sister, mm -hmm. um, according to testimony from survivors. So how does that relate to the Shabbat table and the challenge of having children at the Shabbat table mm -hmm. wanting to talk about a topic this serious? There's a lot of talk about how there's not a lot of awareness and knowledge of the Holocaust as we hoped it would be as deep among the youth, sort of adolescents and adults. Um, so I think the number 75 is important. It's 75 years since her death. But also another number that I would say we could present to people is the number 90, actually, 90, 90, because that's how old she would be. And Frank, if she were living today, mm. um, had she not died at the age of 15 in 1945. And I'll try to talk about this in terms she would have used, because if you know Anne Frank's diary or you've visited the Anne Frank house, you would know that she loved Hollywood. <laughs> and one of the helpers in the secret annex brought her cinema magazines, you know, the movie stars. And, you know, the real fans of Anne Frank know that in her, in her bedroom where she wrote a lot of the diary, she pasted photos of these celebrities on the wall. 
And there's only, this is something I thought to myself and realized myself, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fairly certain of all the people Anne Frank um, wrote about in her diary in terms of celebrities or pasted a photo of them on that wall, only Queen Elizabeth is still alive. Um, she's 93. So I'm just trying to point, you know, when we talk about how old people could have been and what their lives could have been. And Queen Elizabeth might not be the most relatable, depending on who's at your table. But, you know, people have certainly heard of Betty White or Tony Bennett, Mel Brooks. There's, you know, people in your own family, obviously, who are that age. So I think it's another interesting framework um, to bring up a difficult topic and, you know, to kind of get people to see that it's more recent than it might appear to you. They're not just in history, these events. And, you know, if one and a half million Jewish children had not have been, you know, killed in the Holocaust, who knows, you know, what, what, how many kids and grandkids, who knows what could have been contributed. So that's my number 90 um, and how it relates to Anne Frank and that anniversary. Manya, what about you? You know, I'm curious, did Anne Frank have pictures of Kirk Douglas on her wall? Because he just I passed don't. away at 103. So he yeah, was certainly I saw that around. on Google when I was looking. He wasn't on the wall. He didn't make it. Okay. <laughs> I think like Greta Garbo, um, some people like Clark Gable, they were on the wall there and in the diary. Some of those like old Hollywood people. <laughs> wow. Wow. It really, really brings home just how young she was and what her interests were and her priorities at that time, what her priorities should have been <laughs> at that time, yeah, exactly. at that age. Exactly. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, Sefi, Matt, I remember uh, offering a piece of candy to one of my preschool friends when I was my daughter's age and being told that she was not supposed to take candy from strangers. And even at the age of three, I remember thinking, what an idiot. I'm your best friend. But this was the stern warning we grew up with, and I deliver equally stern warnings to my children today. Don't stray too far. Always stay where I can see you. If something doesn't seem or feel right, tell an adult. But what about when something seems quite right? In fact, kind of awesome. You know, like when a bouquet of balloons floats down from the clouds carrying a doll, a model airplane, or a soccer ball. It's a dream come true for young imaginations. But in Israel, that unicorn falling from the sky could be what kills them. A rising number of balloon bouquets and kites carrying incendiary devices disguised as toys have been landing in yards and parks in southern Israel. Palestinian terrorists in Gaza have been launching these flying bombs since 2018, which is why the Israel Defense Forces Home Front Command has penned a poem titled What Does the Wind Bring With It? for children to recite and to take to heart. I'll recite it for you here. Dry leaves, broken branches, flying plastic bags. One time, even, the wind blew my hat very, very far. And sometimes the wind brings with it dangerous things, which come from over the fence. They are not mine, and they're not some friends. A ball, a book, or a balloon, they can be an explosive, one that's dangerous in the shape of a kite. If we see them, an adult we must call, and we must move ourselves far away from the sight. Besides that, I'm already big and I know that you shouldn't touch suspicious objects. So after the dangerous thing is taken away, we can come back to enjoy and play. The verse was composed in Hebrew by Lieutenant Colonel Tali Versano Eisman, the head of the Home Front Command's Child Outreach Department. The translation comes from the Times of Israel's Judah Ari Gross. The poems are in response to a rising number of these ballistic balloon bouquets. While these dangerous decoys have caused few injuries, they've ignited fires on farms and in parks and forests. Now, 
The fact that Israel's military has a child outreach department makes me shudder. The fact that Shel Silverstein could have been employed there confounds me even more. His are the poems we should be reading to our children. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out, or I will not play at tug-of-war, I'd rather play at hug-of-war. Aren't these the verses and the lessons children should be imbibing when they go to bed at night? But in some parts of the world, that is simply not realistic, and the military has stepped in with a creative solution. Now, someone recently recommended an essay to me titled, Poetry is Not a Luxury. Even if its author, Audre Lorde, never intended for her words to apply to this situation, I would argue that its wisdom is indeed relevant here. Poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. In Israel, poetry is definitely not a luxury. That it has become a vital necessity to keep children alive is both brilliant and heartbreaking. And sadly, that's what we will discuss at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, how about you? Well, I'll be remembering two people at my Shabbat table this week. The first is General Mickey Marcus. Too few people today know the story of Mickey Marcus, the U.S. Army colonel and public servant. Marcus's resume is extraordinary. He graduated West Point in 1924, went on to Brooklyn Law School, and became an assistant U.S. attorney. After Pearl Harbor, he ended up in Hawaii and then, in 44, was sent to Britain, where he talked his way into being a part of the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, despite never having parachuted before in his life. Later, as a part of the occupation staff in Germany, he visited Dachau and experienced a Zionist awakening. After attending the Nuremberg trials, the army offered to promote him to brigadier general, but he chose to return to civilian life instead of taking the promotion. And that's where Mickey Marcus's story really gets interesting. Because in January 1948, at the behest of David Ben-Gurion, Marcus traveled to British Mandatory Palestine to join the Haganah, the defensive militia of pre-state Israel. He played a critical role in stepping up the Haganah's defensive abilities, and shortly after the creation of the state, as the war for independence raged, he received the rank of Aluf, or general, becoming the first Israeli general in 2,000 years. Tragically, after playing a critical role in breaking the Jordanian siege of Jerusalem, Mickey Marcus was killed by friendly fire. His grave in West Point is apparently the only one for an American soldier killed while fighting for another country. Its inscription reads, Colonel David Marcus, a soldier for all humanity. Now, I'm remembering Mickey Marcus this week because Kirk Douglas died. Born in 1916 as Isser Danilovich, Kirk Douglas would go on to become one of the greatest stars of the golden age of cinema. Though he only connected to Judaism as a religion later in life, several of his film choices reflected a deep connection to the Jewish people. In 1976, just months after the daring Israeli commando raid on the Entebbe airport to free hostages from Palestinian terrorists, Douglas starred in Victory at Entebbe. And 10 years earlier... In 1966, he starred as Mickey Marcus in Cast a Giant Shadow, a Hollywood blockbuster memorializing Marcus's incredible life. Kirk Douglas died last week, marking the end of an era for American cinema and the end of an only in America kind of life. May the memory of these two amazing men be for a blessing. And may we all have a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 
You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 